What does Jesus' authority mean for the command that I must make the gospel known? I'm going to read Colossians chapter 2, or chapter 4, verse 2. This is Colossians chapter 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we, we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let me pray that God would apply his word to our lives. Father, we come in prayer, praying that your spirit would would change our hearts, show us our sin. Help us to acknowledge our need for you. Lord, let us see the depth of the gospel, the power of the gospel at work. So, Lord, we come asking you to work in us, to change our hearts, to make us men and women who are joyful in announcing the good news of Jesus, our Savior. Father, we come to give you praise. We come because your word is our hope and our source of life. And so we come in the name of Jesus, our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Evangelism is proselytism of the worst kind. Maybe that's your reaction today. That evangelism feels like a bad form of proselytism, sort of forcing someone to accept your religious beliefs. It feels inappropriate because you are demanding that someone else think like you think. And so you're, you're wondering that maybe we should just let people reach their own conclusions. Maybe we should just let them find what works for them. And that might not only be your reaction if, if you're somebody who's wrestling with the claims of Christianity, if you're a visitor with us or if you're listening online wondering if the, the central truths of, of the Christian gospel could be true. That might be your reaction even if you're already a Christian. That evangelism, it just seems, well... It seems selfish and like you're imposing your beliefs on another. And so you might be tempted, even as a Christian, to avoid evangelism, sharing the good news about what Jesus has done. That's what the word means. It just is the, the, the spreading of good news. Because you are actually, when you share good news, expecting that somebody else is going to change their beliefs and believe what you believe, and so you're, you're, you hesitate. Because maybe that feels immoral, to impose your beliefs on another. And yes, we... We as Christians could acknowledge that there have been times in the, the history of the church where, that, where evangelism has been wrongly done, or, or maybe even in your own life where you've been, you've been a little bit too pushy. You've, you've, you've been selfish in, in telling somebody else what they should believe. But bad evangelism doesn't make all evangelism wrong. And, and if the claims of Colossians are true, which, which these are the claims that we as a church say are true, these are the central claims of, of Christianity. If the claims of Scripture are true, then evangelism is essential. It's necessary. It's absolutely the right thing to do. Because Jesus is our only hope of salvation, we have to share the good news. Because there is genuine grace and forgiveness available to everyone, we have to share this good news. And Paul is inviting the Colossian believers to join him in the mission of evangelism. Now, you, you saw the, the commands in the passage as I read it. There, it's, it's really two categories, prayer and evangelism. Or, or as one commentator says, you could, you could divide this passage. It's, it's 
prayer talking to God about the needs of people and evangelism talking to people about their need for God. And so that's all we're going to do is just walk through the passage in a, in a pretty straightforward way, talking about prayer and evangelism and how then they also overlap in prayer for evangelism. We look at the command given in verse 2, the command to devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Paul's expectation is that for the Christian, they will be continually committed to praying to talking with God, to engaging in, in meaningful relational conversation with God, to, to pouring out the needs of others to God, bringing petitions, the, the, the needs of, of those around us, our own needs, bringing them to God. Devote yourselves to prayer. And then the commands that he gives at the end of the verse, being watchful and thankful, tell us what that prayer should look like. We're to be people who are watchful, in eager anticipation that, that in one sense, yes, God is the God who hears our prayers, so we're, we're watching to see God answer these prayers. But, but in the New Testament, often this language of being watchful is applied specifically to watching for the return of Jesus. That we are people who pray knowing that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, sitting on his throne, but he has not left us alone. He is coming again, and so we are watching, even as we pray, waiting for the return of Christ, knowing that his kingdom is here on earth, even as we prayed in the Lord's Prayer, that God's kingdom would come here on earth. And that we, we not only pray being watchful, and that you can see even just the way that it's translated for us, being watchful, it's a continual posture. It's, it's, it's this anticipation, but we also, we are people who are thankful. We, we, we are filled with joy because we recognize what God has done for us. God sent his own son to be our savior. God has rescued us from our sin. And so we see the grace that has been given to us and that means that we can come to God with joy, with thanksgiving and prayer, anticipating his continued work in the world, his, the return of Jesus, our savior, and we devote ourselves to prayer. And in one sense, our perseverance in prayer can serve as a spiritual barometer of your, of your health. You can, you can figure out how healthy you are spiritually by how, how clearly you follow this command. Are you devoted to prayer? And, and I'm not saying that, that, that prayer becomes something that then becomes always easy. No, there, we live in a, in a world that's broken by sin. We, we are, ourselves are distracted. Our, our attention spans have been shortened. And so, so prayer always, always requires this kind of perseverance, this kind of devotion. But if you're not praying, it's telling you something about yourself. Because the self-righteous and self-reliant don't need to pray. Why would I waste my time privately talking with God when I could be out there getting something done. See, the self-righteous don't need to depend on God in prayer. But it's not only in our self-righteousness that we might turn from prayer in our, in our weariness, in our brokenness. We might feel like, I, I'm just giving up. I've poured out my heart and I don't see any change. See, but the dependent Christian... The Christian who wants to continue to grow in, in the knowledge of the gospel is one who is committed to prayer, devoted to prayer, because prayer is a standard feature of the Christian life. It's not an option that you add on. 
prayer is, is part of what it means to follow after Jesus. And so that's why Paul makes the command very clearly in verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And so prayer is us talking to God about the needs of the world. But, but Paul is also telling us that we need, to, we need to evangelize. We need to talk to the world about their need for God. And so in verses 3 and 4, we see that Paul asks them to pray for the work of evangelism. So this is where we see the overlap between prayer and evangelism. In verse, verse 3, Paul says, And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim it the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. This language of an open door is, is an easy enough example for us to understand, which is why it's used repeatedly in the New Testament. Used by the Apostle Paul, it's used in, in the, the book of Acts to describe the, the opportunities that are available for the church. That there's, there's an open door for the gospel to travel through, for the word to enter. But, but, you, but we see that there's power in the message itself. Because Paul, and we'll, we'll make this point more explicitly, Paul is not expecting that he himself will be free to travel through open doors. He's expecting that, that pray that God may open a door for our message. It, one commentator says it, it's, it's as if the message itself, the word itself, the truth of the gospel itself is, is dynamic and almost personal. That the prayer is that God would open a door for his message. Message to bring conviction of sin to those that hear the gospel. To weigh, to weigh them down by the, the reality of their brokenness so that they can find forgiveness in Jesus. He describes this message as a mystery. He says, verse 3, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Now, we tend to think of the word mystery as something which is hidden that we've got to figure out. It's, it's something we, we haven't yet understood. It's mysterious and unknown. And, and that's the way the, the word is used normally in English. But in the New Testament, it's, it's almost a technical word to describe that which was hidden, which has now been made known. So yes, like in reading through the mystery novel like, and to try and figure out who done it, you're already at the end of the book. You already know the, the solution. You already know the answer. The mystery is that which we didn't know before, but is now made clear. We, we didn't understand how God was going to bring salvation to every nation on earth, to every people on earth, but he's, he's made it clear. That's how Paul uses the, the word mystery earlier in the, the letter to the Colossians. That the mystery is that, that God's grace now extends to all people, not just his chosen people, the Jews, but to, to every nation. You, you can look at it clearly now. You're at the end of the story looking back. You know, you know everything. You know all of the, the players. You, you see the whole thing. It's, it's like that moment at the end of one of those home renovation shows where you've been watching. You've, you've seen the designs. You've watched them tear down the walls. You've, you've watched some of what they're doing. And then there's that, that moment they've maybe got the, the giant screen in front of a, of a picture of what the old house looked like. And then they're about to pull it back and then they cut to one more commercial break. But after that commercial break, when, when, they, when they pull back what it, what it looked like before, they reveal the mystery behind it. It's now fully revealed. You see the, the old is gone, the new is right there. That's what Paul is saying. It's, we, we've pulled it back, we've shown you what it is. And that moment in the, in the TV show where, where they blaspheme and they shout, oh my God becomes a moment in the gospel where we actually can say that with joy and gratitude. The mystery is shown, oh my God, 
My Savior, Jesus, died in my place. That's the mystery that Paul is saying. It's, it's not something that's, that's confusing or unclear. It's something which, is, which was unknown but has now been, been fully revealed, that Jesus, the Son of God, died in the place of sinners to reconcile to himself all peoples, that Jesus is the Savior who gave himself for us. And so Paul prays that this mystery, this truth which is now seen by all, would be heard. And, and Paul says that this is the mystery, this gospel message is the reason that he is, verse 3, in chains, the reason that he is bound, the reason that he is imprisoned. And we may have forgotten that detail because Paul in, in Colossians speaks with such unbound joy and hope. He, he lets us soar into the heavens to see the greatness and grandeur of, of the gospel that we might forget where he himself is. He has been imprisoned because he was preaching the gospel. And yet, Nothing can stop the work of God's kingdom. Paul is physically imprisoned. He doesn't expect doors to be physically opened for him, but he knows that no door can be held shut to the work of God, to the power of the gospel. He expects that that, that which humanity has, has tried to stop, the power of God will open doors so that the message will be heard. See, there is no opposition that can stop the hope of the gospel. Even imprisonment can't slow down the work of God's kingdom. Paul asks them, verse 4, to pray that I might proclaim it. I might proclaim the mystery of Christ. I might proclaim this message clearly as I should. So that's a prayer that the the mystery, which is so grand and glorious, that the Son of God came into the world, would be able to be explained with clarity so that people would hear it. But, but that, that phrase at the very end of verse 4, that I may proclaim it clearly as I should, almost feels like a throwaway line to us in, in the English translations. Like, oh yeah, as I'm supposed to do. You know, like this is part of what I guess I should be working at. In, in the Greek, it's, it's even more forceful. It's, it's this is absolutely necessary. And often in the, in the New Testament when that phrase is used, it is the command of God that this must take place. It has to happen. Paul is saying the the work of the gospel, spreading the message of the gospel, is absolutely necessary for me to to be who I'm meant to be. I've been called by God, and and in in Paul's case, called as an apostle, one sent with this message, one commissioned by Christ himself. But but, but you'll see that that Paul is asking then, he'll, he'll turn this command onto the church. That it's absolutely essential For a Christian, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, that we are proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. And so Paul speaks about prayer, asks them to pray for the work of evangelism, and now turns his attention to the church's role in this ministry of announcing the gospel. Look at the commands of verses 5 and 6. In verse 5 we read, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. I mean, you, almost, you, you can see the transition in Paul's thought. You need, to, you need to pray because we are people dependent upon God. And, and the thing I need you to pray about is the mission of the church. And of course, once we start talking about the mission of the church, then, then you need to think about your role in the mission of the church. And that's also the, the pattern that God works in our hearts. If we're hesitant to share the gospel, then if we pray for open doors for the message of the gospel, then our hearts will, will be committed to that work. 
And we might actually begin to see some of the, the light shining through a door and, and then decide to, to nudge it open a little bit in conversation. That as we pray, as we're committed to the work of God, then we actually, that, that has to flow into the work of announcing the, the message of what God has done for us. And so Paul gives the command then, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. That your very actions, your very posture matter. The way that you position yourself in the world matters. And there have been times that as Christians in, in, in this century and maybe in all centuries, but we have been known for what we are against rather than what we're for. And there are times that certainly culturally we have to sort of draw a line and say, well, no, that's what the Bible would call sin. And so we can't condone that. We can't accept that. We can't go down that path. And we have to, we have to say at times that would be sin, that would be wrong. But too often, that's all the culture has ever heard us talk about, our peripheral issues about behavior. What if, what if as a church we were known for constantly diverting the conversation back to this good news? Yes, yes, we can, we can talk about that. I'm, I'm glad to talk that through with you. But, but, but before we even get there, I need you to hear. I mean, the central message of what I want you to know, our commitment as a church, my commitment as a Christian, is to make sure that the work of Jesus Christ is known that you, a sinner, can be reconciled to God merely by putting your trust in Jesus Christ? What if the gospel was, was so, so much a part of our, our conversations that, that people knew, boy, that church, that Christian, has, has a message that seems so filled with joy and hope? And so Paul says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, and then continues in verse 5, make the most of every opportunity. Literally, the, the phrase is, buy up the time. Purchase the time that's right in front of you. And, and again, this language of time, like the language of watchfulness in the New Testament, often has us thinking about the fact that Jesus is coming again. There is only a limited amount of time that we have to, to make the gospel known. And so, redeem the time that's right in front of you. Maybe that's the translation you have in front of you. Make the most of every opportunity. The time for evangelism, for sharing the good news, is now. It's today. It, we don't wait for the work of evangelism until things get back to normal. We, we shouldn't wait to do the work of sharing good news and, until conversations are easier when you can sit closer to somebody and, and not have a mask keeping you at a distance. The, waiting until, until you have more free time. Or waiting until your job is more secure. Or waiting until you're finished with this course or, or this school year. No, Paul says, buy the time, make the most of every opportunity. Right now is the moment you have to share good news. Today. And, and he says then, verse 6, let your conversation be always full of grace. All the time. Your conversation should be around the hope of the gospel. And, and that, that phrase, full of grace, we can, we can take it in, in, in two ways. And, and actually, Paul might be pressing us to, to do both. That, that, he, that he's describing how we should have these conversations, that we do, should do so graciously. That we should be people who not, who not sort of pound our fists and yell at others for getting it wrong, but that we graciously extend to them. We listen to them. We hear them. We understand what they're saying, that we are people who are a delight to have a conversation with. But, but, I, but I think he's also saying, 
Let your conversation always be, be always full of grace. You have a message that, that describes the gift that God is giving, this gracious gift of his own son, the gift of, of the forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life. You have grace to give to those in need. And so let your conversation be always full of grace. Paul is talking about our attitudes, how we respond, but also the message. That we are people who are quick to listen. See, are you, are you always in conversation sort of forming your response? Sort of figuring out what you're going to say next? Or are you somebody who is actually listening so that you can repeat back and understand what somebody is saying to you? I think most of the time I probably fall in the former category. I've got a better answer for you than anything you're going to say to me, so I'll just formulate that in my own head. And I'll nod along like I'm listening. So are we people that are gracious in the way we respond to others? Or do we merely speak to hear ourselves speak? Are we gracious in that we offer them real hope? And Paul says that our conversations should, should be full of grace, but look at how he continues. Seasoned with salt. Now, salt on our table is used to, to make something a little more flavorful. And so I think part of what Paul is saying is, is we, should, we, should, we should make the message, our conversation should, should make the, the work of Jesus seem desirable. This is such a good gift that people should be intrigued by it. There should be a little bit, bit of flavor that, that draws people in. But, but remember, in the ancient world, salt was not only used for the, the flavor of food, but but without a refrigerator, it was used for the preservation of food. And so again, this language that you have a message which, will, which, can, which can preserve people in the face of judgment. You have a message of, of hope. Again, Paul kind of pointing us to there, there is a, a coming judgment. You need to be watchful. You need to buy up the time. You need to, you need to be somebody who can preserve hope for the world by, by sharing the gospel message. And Paul concludes verse 6, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Are you ready with an answer? And now, part of that means you need to know some answers, because if the, the sort of know-nothing response of, well, I don't know, of, of, of always saying, well, you know, if somebody comes and says, well, what's your, like, what's the hope that you have? That, to, to, just, to just shrug our shoulders, so that means that, that you're, you're able in some ways to answer some of the big questions people will bring, the kinds of questions that we, we ask on Wednesday nights in Faith Explored. Questions about, why am I here? What's gone wrong in the world? How could a good God allow e evil to take place in this world? What, what about the judgment of hell? What about the, 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 the Christianity being all, having all of these rules? That you would be able to answer some of those questions. Questions that we often wrestle with, even in our, in our pulpit here. But it also means that, that you know how to answer people. It, it's, again, the posture that we bring. Do you, does your life prompt questions from people? Because... Having an answer for everyone presumes what? That they'll ask you a question. Or that they have unasked questions. That, that, that they carry with them because everyone lives in the world God made. They live under the burden of their own guilt and shame. And so even if they haven't asked the question yet, they're, they're longing for this question of how would I be reconciled. But does your life actually prompt questions? Do people look at you and say, there's something different. You can, you can walk through the struggles of life and you seem, to, you seem to have some hope. And one of the ways that we can prompt questions from other people is by asking them questions. By asking them, how are you doing in the midst of this pandemic with the restrictions? How are you able to, to hang on to any hope? 
And then to share the hope that, that you have. You answer the questions, maybe by even raising the question for them, an, an unexamined question that, the, that they haven't even brought to you yet. Because we, we have a gospel which is true and beautiful, which meets the needs, which answers the questions that people have. There's nothing that can stop the spread of this gospel. Not even being chained in a prison cell can stop the message that Paul proclaims. Not that Paul anticipates he'll walk out of prison, but that the message can't be contained, that there will be open doors. And so as we as believers commit ourselves to prayer and then to praying for evangelism and then going with the message, we can see a world transformed because the gospel is powerful. On January 9th, 1985, Pastor Christo Kulichev, he was a pastor in Bulgaria, a country controlled by the Communist Party at the time, Pastor Kulichev was arrested and put in prison. His only crime was announcing good news to his neighbors. Initially, his church prayed fervently for his release, that he would be free so that the gospel could continue to spread, that his ministry would be unhindered by the evils of communism. But, but Pastor Kulichev spent nearly four years in prison and then exiled from his country. But when he got out of prison, he described how, how his church was committed to the gospel. He described that he actually had more freedom in prison to preach than he had outside of prison. Because what are you going to do to me? I'm already here. And so this is what he wrote when he, when he got out of prison. He said, both prisoners and jailers asked many questions. And it turned out that we had a more fruitful ministry there than we could have expected in church. Because in church, under the, the restrictions and the secrecy required for gathering, there were, there were limited opportunities for the gospel to be proclaimed. But in, in a prison where everybody is already trapped, he says, God was better served by our presence in prison than if we had been free. An open door for the gospel. So even the chains of prison can't slow down the gospel. And so you and I, with our radical freedoms, our, our celebrated freedoms, we have the opportunity to make the gospel known. Nothing can stop this gospel. And so devote yourselves to prayer. Pray that there would be an open door for this message and then go. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace. Let me pray that God would apply this truth through us, to our friends and neighbors. Father in heaven, I ask that you would show us the, the failures of our sin, that you would show us ways in which we have resisted making the gospel known. Lord, let us confess our sins and come to you in faith. For those that have listened this morning without a, a knowledge of Jesus as Savior, I pray that they would hear this good news, that they would see the mystery now revealed, that they would understand the truth of what you have done and that they would put their faith in you. For you are the God of grace. You are our hope. You are our Savior. And so, Father in heaven, we come giving you praise for the work of Jesus Christ, the King who reigns in heaven, the King who is coming again. We pray in the name of Jesus, Jesus the Lord Christ. Amen.